All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 30 through to 41. Let me pray, uh, let me read this for us. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And, who receives, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word now, we just ask, Lord, that you would give us the eyes of faith. Help us to understand your word, but Lord, also help us to live your word to take what we see here and to truly begin to put it into practice, to not just be hearers, but also doers of your glorious word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, history has shown that human beings naturally aspire to greatness. Men and women throughout history have sought greatness. And history has shown that greatness has often been defined by power, strength, status, and wealth. The one who has gained the world, history tells us, is the one who is considered great. The one who has conquered peoples and lands, like Alexander the Great, are the ones who are considered great. Greatness is often ascribed to men who have accomplished great things regardless of the ways in which they accomplished those things. Think of men like Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, who accomplished much but was horrible to many people. Or men like Michael Jordan. It's the wealthy and the powerful that are ascribed greatness by society. It's the winners who are great, those who finish first in life. 
This is how humans have often defined greatness throughout history. But there is one man who has challenged such an idea. There is a man who defined greatness radically different than the world defines greatness. And that man, of course, was Jesus himself. And here in this passage, we are given one of the most, if not the most, radical teachings of Jesus. A teaching that literally makes no sense unless you have the eyes of faith to understand it. This teaching is radical and it's completely countercultural. It goes against the, fra- the fabric of human thinking and the ways in which we operate as a society. But here's the thing. A true disciple of Jesus, one who claims the name of Christ, one who says that they have believed upon Jesus Christ, have repented of their sins and have trusted in him, a true disciple of Jesus is one who not only believes this teaching to be true, but embraces it in one's life. Now, the context of the story, of course, is that Jesus has just delivered a boy from demonic possession after the disciples were unable to do so because of their unbelief. And now Jesus and his disciples, they leave from where they were and they decide to pass through Galilee. And as we see from verse 30 to 31, he didn't want anyone to know because he was teaching his disciples. And what was he teaching them? Well, verse 31 tells us, In verse 31, he says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So again, he is teaching them about his impending death, but also his resurrection. Now, this is the second time where he teaches his inner circle about his death and resurrection. Remember, the first time was in Mark 8, 31 to 33, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And there's also going to be another time, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But what's important to see is that each time Jesus teaches his disciples about his death and resurrection, he then immediately begins to teach his disciples on the nature of true discipleship and what it means to truly follow him. And he does this precisely because the disciples over and over again show that they don't truly understand what Jesus is all about. As we see in verse 32, after he tells them that he's going to suffer and die, they say, or in verse 32 we're told, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. See, despite the fact that Jesus has already plainly told them in Mark chapter 8 that he's going to suffer and die, and not only that, he also repeats it to Peter, James, and John while they're on the holy mountain, they still don't get it. They still don't understand. Their minds are so fixed that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be this political liberator that they cannot grasp that Jesus is going to suffer and die. Calvin says this about the disciples in this story. So great is the influence of preconceived opinion that it brings darkness over the mind in the midst of the clearest light. 
And this is not just true of the disciples. It's often true of us. We are so deeply influenced by our preconceived opinions that literally there is darkness hanging over our eyes so that we cannot see that which is clearest light. And so Jesus tells them that he's going to be killed and three days later rise. And it's remarkable that after Jesus has just spoken of his humiliation, his suffering, his death, they make their way to Capernaum and we discover that along the way, the disciples were having a conversation amongst themselves. In fact, verse 34 tells us they were actually arguing amongst themselves. So when they finally arrived to Capernaum, Jesus is in the house with his disciples and he asked them in verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? Now Jesus already knew, but he asked this because he wants to teach them something. And in verse 34, we're told how they responded. How did they respond? Verse 34, they kept silent. Why? Probably because they were embarrassed. Somehow they knew Jesus wouldn't have approved of their conversation. What was their conversation? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So here's Jesus speaking about his humiliation and suffering. And then they're making this journey to Capernaum. And they're literally having an argument amongst amongst themselves on who is the greatest. Now, how this conversation began, we don't know. Maybe Peter, James, and John were were ridiculing the other disciples over the fact that they were unable to cast out the demon. Maybe Peter, James, and John are, are thinking that they're superior to the others because they were invited to with Jesus to go and behold the transfiguration of Christ, unlike the other disciples. We don't know exactly where this conversation stemmed from. All we know is that a bunch of grown men were arguing about who was the greatest amongst them. Things don't change. It's not just 10-year-old boys who argue about who's the best. There are numbers of men who, till their dying breath, are trying to prove that they are the greatest. And so it's at this moment in the narrative in verse 35 where Jesus sits down like a rabbi, ready to teach, and he calls his disciples to them, to him, and completely challenges their notion of what greatness is. And what he tells them is ultimately this, that greatness comes through servanthood. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. So if you see this, Jesus is making a parallel between being first and the greatest, right? They're arguing about who is the greatest. And so Jesus says, if if you desire to be first, that is, if you desire to be the greatest, right? He's making that parallel. And then he also makes a parallel between being last and a servant, the last of all and the servant of all. So if you want to be the greatest in God's economy, if you want to be first, you must, see that word? You must be last of all and servant of all. This isn't an option. If you want to be the greatest in God's kingdom, you must be last of all 
and servant of all. This is almost identical argumentation to Jesus' exhortation in Mark 8, 34 to 35. You want to save your life? Then lose it for Jesus' sake. Those who lose their life will actually save it. You want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. And we need to grasp just how countercultural this is, not just in our day, but also in Jesus' day. They had ways in the ancient world to differentiate between people's status in society. So, for example, if, if there was a banquet in the ancient world, there would be a, a certain order to things, like the seating arrangement, to make clear who were the haves and the have-nots. To make clear who had status and who didn't. Who was considered great by worldly standards and who wasn't considered great. And Jesus totally destroys such thinking through his teaching, but also through his example. See, friends, the kingdom of God doesn't advance through power and status, but servanthood. Jesus isn't against greatness. That needs to be made clear. Jesus is all for greatness. God has made us for greatness. He wants us to do great things, but he redefines what those things are. He's not against greatness. He redefines greatness. See, in the eyes of God, in the economy of God, the greatest is not the most accomplished, but it's the one who gives his life or her life, to serving others. Now, if you're seeking the approval of the world and of other humans, then Jesus' teaching about greatness will be distasteful to you. Because you will never receive the praise and the status that the world could give you. But if your aim If your goal, if your purpose is to please and honor God, then status and greatness by worldly terms won't mean all that much to you because it doesn't mean all that much to God. And brothers and sisters, this this call to servanthood, this call to being last of all and servant of all, isn't just meant to be practiced in the life of the church. This call to servanthood is meant to be lived in every aspect of our lives. For example, it's meant to be lived in our homes. How many men have neglected their wives and their children in the pursuit of some worldly definition of greatness? Or how many women have forsaken having children in order to pursue some kind of worldly idea of greatness? Or how about your workplace? What does it look like to be the servant of all in your workplace? What does it look like to aspire to be the servant of all in your workplace, regardless of what your role is, whether or not you're the CEO of the company or whether you're the janitor in the company? What does it look like to be the servant of all? You see, if you go to work with the sole purpose of making money and getting ahead and being able to clock in your hours, I don't think you're thinking about work as a Christian ought to think about work. 
But if you see your workplace as a place to primarily, primarily be a blessing to others and serve others, then your work experience becomes a Christian act. Your work becomes something sacred in the eyes of God. Or if you come to church to primarily be served and not to serve, then I don't think you truly know what it means to truly be a part of a healthy church. See, Jesus' principle is this. Servanthood precedes greatness. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who is the servant of all will be great in the eyes of God. Now, in verse 36 to 37, Jesus seeks to further illustrate his point by taking a child. And this is what we read in verse 36 to 7. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What's the point that Jesus is making about this illustration of of this child? The attitude of servanthood that Jesus is speaking of doesn't overlook a lowly child. See, children in the ancient world were often at times marginalized. In other words, Jesus is saying this, Will you receive and embrace a lowly child who can give you nothing in return, will you receive that child with the same joy and delight that you would receive a person of status who might have the power to influence your status? Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, the great English preachers, was by all accounts a great man. He accomplished much. Many argue that he's the greatest preacher the Western world has ever known. In the 1800s, he preached to over 6,000 people on a regular basis. He started over 62 ministries. And at that time, he had written more than any other man in the English language. He was a gifted, accomplished pastor. But what's often overlooked or what's often not talked about is Spurgeon's servant-heartedness. John Bagot, I probably am saying his name wrong, he was an activist around the same time as Spurgeon, and he asked Spurgeon uh, to take him on a tour of the orphanage that Spurgeon had started for children. And while he was showing John the orphanage, one of the teachers who were working at the orphanage came to, came to Spurgeon and told him that one of the orf- orphan boys was horribly sick and was most likely going to die. But the boy longed to see Spurgeon. And so Spurgeon told John, John, I need to go see this child. You're welcome to come with me. And so Spurgeon went to see this boy, and, and John also went with him as well. And they were there sitting at the side of this dying child. And John records how incredibly compassionate and tender Spurgeon was with this child. He spent time praying for him and encouraging him with God's word. But John said this about 
this experience that he had seeing Spurgeon at the bedside of this young orphan boy who was dying. He wrote this. I had seen Spurgeon hold 6,500 people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in a breathless interest. I had seen him sway the mighty multitude with his preaching. But he was to me in that moment with this dying orphan child a greater and grander man than I had ever seen him commanding the crowds through his preaching. And I'm guessing that God probably thought the same as well. Now notice that Jesus says in the passage that whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives me not me or me only, but him who sent me, that is the Father. What is Jesus saying there? When you care for a lowly child in the name of Jesus, that is, you're doing this because you're a follower of Jesus. You want to honor Jesus and serve this child. When you do that, you're not just receiving the child, but you're also receiving Jesus and the Father. Now, Jesus here is not talking about works salvation in the sense that you receive Jesus as Savior. No, no. He's speaking here more about the idea of communion and fellowship with the Son and the Father. By receiving that lowly child, by identifying with the lowly, you are being granted fellowship with the Son and also the Father. The one who is servant of all and serves the lowly has fellowship with Jesus and the Father. You think of the story, I forget the chapter in Matthew, but where Jesus, the, the goat and the sheep, right? What's the, what's the distinction between the goat and the sheep? Well, it's the one who came to me and cared for me and came to me in prison. And he said, the, you, the, the least you did to these, you did to me. And so brothers and sisters, if you want to be first, then be last. If you want to be great, then be a servant. And here's the reality. The greatest of all, the greatest of all mankind was the servant of all. Jesus lived this very principle. He was and he is the greatest of all, but he became the servant of all when he was humiliated on that cross for our sins. But that act of humiliation, that act of servanthood led to his exaltation. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, true greatness comes through servanthood. Second thing I want us to see in this passage is that the work of the kingdom of God is bigger than you and I. I think that's what Jesus is trying to convey in verses 38 through 40. Look at verse 38 through 40. So Jesus has just been talking about being the servant of all, this child illustration. And then John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. See, in light of what Jesus has been teaching them, good old John pipes up and he says, we, we saw this random dude casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. See, it's interesting. They're, they're disputing who's the greatest among them. And so they're definitely not going to allow some outsider who doesn't follow them to have that kind of influence. And isn't it ironic that the disciples just before this were not able to cast out the demonic? But here's this random dude. We don't know his name. He never seemed to have been a follower of Jesus in that moment. And he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. See, it was us who Jesus gave authority to to cast out demons, not this man. See, they're trying to prevent this unknown man from doing kingdom work because he's not following them. He's not in their tribe. He's not in our tribe. He doesn't have our permission to be casting out demons like that. See, the disciples need to remember that they're servants in Jesus' kingdom and they're not the king. Nor do they need to defend the king. And that's why Jesus says to them, don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. You see, when, when your desire is to be greater than others, then the success of others will be seen as a threat rather than something to rejoice in. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that something bigger than, that, than just them is happening. Jesus has people everywhere doing his work and advancing his purposes. And sometimes we as Christians lose sight of this. And, and we tend to think our tribe and our group are the only legitimate followers of Jesus. And sometimes we get in the way of God's work like the disciples tried to prevent this man from casting out demons in Jesus' name. See, there are people of different theological backgrounds than us, different Christian traditions. And maybe instead of treating them as outsiders, we need to see them more as partners in the gospel. And no, I'm not suggesting that we rejoice or applaud false teachers or partner with heretical movements. I'm not suggesting, for example, that we applaud or get on board with prosperity gospel preachers. Absolutely not. But I am suggesting that there are far more faithful servants of Jesus than we might realize. Who come from different theological tribes, yet still embrace the true gospel of Jesus and still believe the Bible to be God's authoritative word. And if I'm honest, sometimes our modern Calvinistic reform world can be the worst at this. We're so quick to see the wrong in other theological traditions than we are to see the good. And maybe we need to realize that God is accomplishing a lot more outside of just our little theological camp. 
And he is using men and women across the globe in ways we could never have imagined. See, the work of the kingdom of God is bigger than us. And we should rejoice when we see others doing great things for God, even if we don't know them. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't have strong theological convictions and hold to those convictions. But it does mean that God can use many people who don't necessarily hold to those same convictions as us. And we can celebrate the work they're doing for Jesus despite the difference we may have with them. I think of George Verwer, for example, the the founder of OM. Theologically, him and I are not on the same page, but that man has done way more for, for Jesus than I have ever come close to doing. Or I think of George Whitfield, who rejoiced, he rejoiced in the evangelistic work of John Wesley, despite the fact that Whitfield was a Calvinist and Wesley was an Arminian. See, the work of the kingdom is bigger than us. And if Christ is going to be, and if Christ is being glorified through another man or woman, then we ought to rejoice in that. If he's not against us, then he's for us. Third thing that I want us to see is that insignificant acts insignificant acts of care toward those who belong to Jesus are significant acts in the eyes of God. Look at verse 41. This is what I think Jesus is conveying. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The image here is someone has traveled and they they have faced the heat of the sun and they're they're parched. And you find out that they belong to Jesus and so you provide them with a simple glass of water. And Jesus is saying this small, insignificant act is significant in the eyes of God. You will not lose your reward. That is, you'll have a place in the kingdom with Jesus and his disciples. You see, what the world deems as insignificant, Christ deems as significant when it's done in his name. No act of service is insignificant. Little is much when God is in it. I think of those of you who serve on a regular basis here at Royal York, the the little acts of serving that make a huge impact. Those of you who who come early on Sunday morning to to clean the pews and to wipe down the door handles. Those of you who come early on Sunday morning to fold the bulletins week in and week out. Those of you who give up a, a Sunday once a month to go into the nursery and to care for our children so that the parents of our kids can have an hour and a hour and a half on a Sunday morning where they can focus all of their mind and all of their heart upon Jesus. Or I think of those of you who who count the offering after service to make sure everything is right. Or those of you who go out of your way to welcome guests. Or those of you who have people in your home for a meal. Or those of you having lunch with a fellow member and, and paying for their meal. Or I think those of you, those men, of, those men in our church who are investing in some of the boys in our church, and if you're not, I want to encourage you to invest in the younger generation. And ladies, likewise. 
or being faithful in prayer for one another or providing meals for for new moms. You see, to the world, these acts of service are insignificant. But to Jesus, these acts are sacred worship. As Mike Bullmore states, even the smallest thing in Jesus' name is a part of God's work and will fulfill his purposes. You see, in this principle here, this insignificant small act that is significant in the eyes of God, it really goes all the way back to my first point about being eager to be the servant of all. Instead of thinking about doing these great grand things for God, why don't you just commit to doing small little acts of service to others? And I can promise you, you will not lose your reward. A church full of servants is a church full of greatness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus who though he is the greatest of all, he became the servant of all on our behalf. Help us, Lord, that by your spirit we would strive to be the servant of all. That we would truly strive and seek to go low rather than seek to go high. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.